Hey, everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And boy, do I have a special treat for you. Do I say that a lot? I feel like I do, but I I appreciate all of my guests so much that it always does feel like a special treat. But this week, I have somebody, number one, my the people that listen to this podcast know how much I go on and on about London and England and all things British. I'm so obsessed. And so I get someone not only from... England and is British and has the most amazing accent, but also is a poet. And I also go on and on about that. So Piers, welcome. I really appreciate you coming and say hello to our listeners. I guess. Thank you so much for having me, Tina. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. Piers is, of course, a nurse because we would like our guests to be in the healthcare field, and he's a nurse. He works in the, what in America we know as the emergency department. And if you, uh, for you, there are quite a few listeners from the UK that are listening. I, I don't know if I say that right. I probably say the wrong thing, like UK versus, <laughs> oh gosh, I never, I'm pretty sure I don't say it right. UK UK is fine. So UK just means England, Wales, Ireland, just Scotland, the, all together. Somewhere um, in the general area. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So most people are quite happy with UK. Um, some people are very, very adamantly, I'm Scottish or I'm Welsh, but most people are happy <laughs> with the UK. Yeah, and I think whenever we get our, our statistics, it tell us where the listeners come from. I want to say it does just say United Kingdom. I don't think there is a specific, I can't remember exactly. But anyway, we do have a lot of people uh, we'll just say across the pond that listen to the podcast. And so for those of you, he works in uh, the A&E department. And in America, that means the emergency department or the emergency room. So um, glad to have you. I'm so excited about doing this episode. It's, uh, I, I had a chance to listen to to quite a few of the older episodes. And I think it's, it's incredible how many awesome nurses you've got, how many awesome kind of healthcare related people you've got talking about how much they, you know, they love nursing, but also kind of acknowledging the elephant in the room that we're not always in it for the best reasons. And some people unfortunately give us a bit of a bad name. So yeah, good for you for having such a interesting uh, concept that you've run with and got up to past 100 episodes. It's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I had no idea it was going to turn into something uh, like this when I started. It was just kind of a little something to do that was I thought would be fun. And I really, I've, it's something I do love now. It's, it's a passion of mine and it's kind of a creative outlet for me too. And, uh, and I get to meet so many interesting people. So I really am excited to, to get started with this episode. We have an interesting um, bad nurse story to talk about. I had never heard of this person and I don't I feel so like like how in the world I missed him because I research these people all the time I always say if I'm ever under suspicion for doing something wrong I am in so much trouble because if you look at my internet history the stuff that I yeah, get to yeah, google yeah. to find these people but I can't believe I just now came across him and it's a terrible terrible story and the things that he did what I mean just such a scoundrel he's just a um, horrible person but so we'll get started talking about him. This is Malcolm Webster, and he was born in April of 1959 in Wandsworth, Greater London. So Malcolm was the son of a police officer. His dad was a, a detective. His mom was a nurse. And that happens pretty frequently, I think, people, which I find fascinating. I have several friends whose mother was a nurse, and that caused them to go into nursing, and I find that fascinating because sometimes nurses don't always act like they like their job. So it seems interesting that their children would end yeah. up wanting to go into nursing. Do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bad example of that because um, 
my mom's a nurse. And really? She, yeah. So she, she's an incredible nurse. She's very, very up to date, and she she works in a, a GP surgery. So she's a quite a high up nurse practitioner who's was a partner for a bit. So was doing lots and lots of incredible stuff there. But she tried to convince me out of doing nursing when I was thinking about studying it. Oh, um, and funny. she said that it wasn't a good idea because of just the the kind of things which which we discussed before the before this recording. Um there's a lot of issues with nursing um mm-hmm. that are associated not with the actual care necessarily, but with all the kind of political side of funding and, you know, uh, internal conflicts of teams um and the long hours and things like that. And so she's kind of said, I'd already been writing some poetry at the time. So she kind of said it's probably a good idea to try and do that instead of doing anything to do with nursing. But um, I think I made the right right decision i've had a really um interesting and uh eye-opening career and i think that i can always write in my spare time but you can't always nurse in your spare time it's something which kind of has to be all encompassing for a bit and so i'm glad i ignored that advice but sometimes i think um, i'm sure she was doing it for the right reasons (laughs) oh i totally understand her perspective i tell people all the time one of the reasons i started this podcast is when I first started, I haven't been a nurse that long. I've been a nurse for five years. And when I first graduated and started working, I was so excited. And then I was overwhelmed and scared. And I thought I was going to, I thought somebody was going to die on my watch because I didn't know what I was doing. I felt like I didn't have the right, I didn't have enough support. The hospital where I very first started out. Um, and then I quickly left there and went to a larger hospital that with more resources. And that's a magnet institution where they're more focused on nurses uh, mm-hmm. having a voice. And so thank goodness I did that. But I was kind of negative in the beginning and really kind of regretting what I did going into nursing mm-hmm. because I was just thinking, what a mistake. This is terrible. I, I'm miserable. I'm scared all the time. I have these people's lives in my hand. I had no... I had no idea the responsibility that was laid on our shoulders um, for for the amount of resources that we have and how much money is paid. It's paid. It's just so imbalanced. But then after I was doing it for about, I guess I was off orientation maybe a year at some Mm -hmm. point. And I just, everything started clicking and I found myself really enjoying my job and looking forward to going to the hospital and missing it when I wasn't there. And that's when I thought, oh my gosh, I do love nursing. And then I felt bad because I was so negative for a while. And I think I kind of ran some people off, like kind of like what your mom was doing. I was like, don't go into nursing, whatever you do, it's (laughs) terrible. I wish I hadn't done it. Um, Yeah, yeah. I think think my mom's probably gone through multiple cycles where she's been, like she loves her job and she she loves, you know, her patients um, and she loves the amount she can do because she's very highly qualified now. And she's done a PhD in nurse lecturing. So she's a doctor of nursing and things like that. She's incredible as, as, um, as a nurse, but I think she's just all, also very aware of just how tough it is to mm-hmm. to do it consistently well. And if you don't do it well, as with any job, I think the job satisfaction shoots down. Um, and also, if you're fighting against a, a a system or structure that's in place in the department or area you work in, which feels toxic or feels bad for the patients, then it's really really difficult. I think to get that job satisfaction because you feel like you're just fighting fires, mm-hmm. um, or you feel like. Um, you're not doing enough for patients. And then I think the, the times when I've been most upset um, and most frustrated with the job is when I felt like I haven't been able to do enough for the patients who really deserve it because of things outside of my control. Um, but I definitely agree with the idea of being kind of six months to a year before you really can start sinking your teeth into the work because you're so focused on, you know, trying not to miss things and trying to make sure that you've, you know, crossed all the T's and and so focused on kind of learning on the job, even though the three-year nursing degree in the UK should really equip us to do all these things. Actually, it doesn't really... Um, it doesn't really give you the freedom to 
realize that these are people's lives in your hands and um, because usually you've got the kind of uh, support in place which stops you making mistakes when you're a student i think sometimes that, that support can be taken away a bit too quickly when we qualify um and it's not until that happens that you start really understanding what the role of the nurse is but it's terrifying i think for the first few months especially so um i try and do my best for for nursing students whenever they're around but i think sometimes you've got to go through those those lessons by yourself and figure it out by yourself and and ask for help once you reach the limits of your competency by yourself um, other people can't do that for you so it's so true. And you guys, um, I know that just in the little bit that I've been able to talk to Pierce, you can hear the sentiment behind his thoughts. And that's one of the reasons I was so excited to have him on here. And his poetry, that's kind of where his poetry is sort of centered around. And he had like the, the th- types of things that I sometimes very awkwardly stumble around trying to say, he says so beautifully and poetically in his poetry. And he's going to actually say, uh, tell you or speak one of his, po- see, see how I stumble around with my words and say, like, <laughs> I, I put all the wrong it. words together. <laughs> you guys know what I mean. He's going to say one of his poems later on in the show uh, when we get into the the good nurse story. So stick around. You people who normally just come here for the true crime bad nurse story, I know who you are. I guess I see it in the statistics. I'm like, look, they list, <laughs> literally listened up to just, they just want the bad stuff and then they take off. And <laughs> Stick around. You're going to want to hear his poem and then we're, we're going to play another one even at the end of it. So I know you'll be excited about that. This is the kind of thing that I think that people when they're listening, they love kind of like the, how we kind of go in and out with, we talk about the stories, but then kind of weave in talk, you know, kind of the shop talk about the stuff that goes on at the hospital and that sort of thing. And so it's, I think, um, I think badness stories, like all power to you for, for subjecting yourself to having to find out about these stories. Cause I think they can be really, um, morbid there's a curiosity to them but i think that if you if you go too deep into them it's just kind of really sad and frustrating isn't it so i think it's quite nice bouncing in and out and kind of learning a little bit about some of the bad nurse stories but still you know trying to um you know be nice and kind um in between those times because even reading through the story um today it's just it's It's heavy it's yeah it gets very frustrating the amount of kind of missed opportunities to catch people the kind Mm. of um in hindsight, you think, how could anybody, how could people not see how bad this this person was? Um, yeah. And it, you end up, you know, really, I think, internalizing it and thinking, like, there must be so many people out there. But there's also a lot of people out there who are incredible. So, um, yeah. Well, it's true. And that's another reason that, you know, we've uh, I've said before, another reason that we do the sort of like the true crime or the bad nurse story on the podcast is because... You can't really, you don't really just pretend like bad things don't happen or that people don't do sure. these things. You have to shine a light in that darkness in order to reveal that these people are there, that it exists, to be able to do something about it, to have people aware that there are people that do things like this. You can see warning signs and hopefully stop it before before it happens. Um and maybe stop someone from doing it themselves if they know, like, wow, yeah, yeah. all these people attra- attempt to do something and they get caught. So if for some reason you're that sinister and you just, you know, thinking about doing something like that, maybe it'll stop you from doing it. I don't know. So, so this person, Malcolm Webster, back to this scoundrel, he, um, as a child, he would like to fake illnesses in order to get attention. Um, he would pre- pretend to faint. He would pretend to have seizures. Can you imagine how dramatic this person must have been as a child? Like his Mm. parents must have been exhausted if he was just constantly, you know, having a seizure or fainting. And uh, when he was a teenager, he lied to people and told them that he had cancer. How horrible. What a, I mean, for people that really do, you know, that really are afflicted with cancer and and conditions like this, it's so insulting, you know, to have someone... 
And it's a strange one because like the Munchausen syndrome where people pretend to be unwell is mm-hmm. usually linked to so many other things because people do it for all types of reasons. We know that yeah. in this case, he kind of seemed to do it for power, seemed to do it for attention, seemed to do it for money. Um, yeah. I remember actually when I was in school, a, a young young lady who was probably in, at the same age of me, um, I must have been maybe 12, 13 years of age. And, and she told everybody that she had cancer. Um, and it transpired later on that she hadn't. And it transpired because I think her parents were contacted and they said, no, that's not true. Um, and, you know, I think that was, you know, for attention. It was for a whole variety of reasons, for loneliness, for, you know, trying to figure out. I think when you're young, sometimes it's quite difficult to uh, establish um, a personality in with, within all these kind of hormones and within, you know, all the kind of hierarchy. And sometimes people turn to, you know, really insidious ways of doing that, really insidious ways of, of establishing yourself within the kind of social structure of school. Yeah, um, creating an identity. It makes no logical sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes no logical sense to me that that would be something you choose. Um, but it's, it comes up time and time again. It seems like it's something which some people really do reach for. Um, as they a have way to get of kind some of sort of... Some kind of meaning. Yeah, they get some payoff from it or they wouldn't do it, you know? For sure, for sure. So he dropped out of school at 15... And he had a girlfriend who got pregnant at that time. He talked her into having an abortion. And then there's a little bit of blank space there as far as when you're trying to research like what he did. Um, I couldn't even find where he went to nursing school. At some point, at one point, I was wondering, was he ever really a nurse? Because I could not find where he went to nursing school. The only thing I could think yeah, of is, did they do this like hospital diploma thing at any point? Yeah, they did. they've done multiple different ways of training in the UK. Um, and it's only been really the past kind of five, 10 years where you've you've legally had to have a uh, degree that's been earned um, within a university setting. Okay. Before that, there was a, a mix of people with a degree and people who had kind of hospital-based learning. And to some extent, there still is that mix, but you still have to have a degree to become a proper registered nurse. Um, and there was also a mix of people who had something called a nursing diploma, which was kind of partly trained in usually a university or nursing school and partly trained in the hospital. And you usually didn't have to have the same kind of academic sign-off that you have to have now. Um, you didn't have to do a full dissertation and things like that, which we have to do now. So it might have been that because he was kind of training around the time where there was a lot of change happening in UK nursing, there was a lot of kind of handover of registration to different groups um, and the training pathway was being changed to being more kind of university focused. It might have been that he just kind of slipped through the cracks a little bit and they haven't updated his nursing records, but he was probably yeah, trained in a hospital or trained as a diploma. Okay, that makes that makes more sense. Um at some point, he maybe started working in a hospital, went through some sort of training program and became a nurse. Mm-hmm. He was working as a nurse on a pediatric unit by the time he was 30. And after he had been there for about six months, they forced him to leave because there was a little incident where three, I say little incident, it was a horrible thing that happened. Three children died who had been under his care at one time. They were all under this uh, under six years old. Oh gosh, it's just awful. Um, they all had died of cardiac arrest. I mean, that's that's very very strange. unusual. Yeah, yeah, strange. I mean, also, I think I think it might have been this time when he was working in uh, Saudi Arabia. I know he moved around quite a lot, and he was. I think at some point he was working in uh, Abu Dhabi, and. Yes. Um, it seems like a very similar, yeah, I think it must be the same time, but I wonder if there was different processes in place. I wonder at what time it was, because I think there's been a lot more 
as we've learned more about uh, bad nurses and bad doctors, um, I think there's been a lot more checks and second checks across most of the healthcare systems in the world. So I think it's less likely that people will be able to get away with this kind of stuff as long as he seems to have, because um, he just seems to have done horrible things and then moved on to another trust or moved on to another country um, and been able to kind of avoid um, any castigation, any substantial castigation because of the things he's been doing. But it's definitely, definitely a strange situation, isn't it, really? Yes, and uh, I think that you're kind of onto something there because the children were all from Islamic families. And so I think that uh, he probably would have been aware that those families would have not wanted autopsies performed on those children for religious purposes, and they would have wanted a quick burial. So I would guess he probably would be aware of that and would be thinking that that would probably help him out in not getting caught. And it did, unfortunately. So he did have an ex-girlfriend who worked with him at the hospital that said that his supervisor somehow discovered he had been injecting himself with insulin. I can't even believe this. It's just some of the things people do to themselves. Yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure. But that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of an extension of the Munchausen. So uh, yeah. Munchausen, some people will just pretend to have the disease or or pretend to to have symptoms and then some people will actually subject themselves to things to develop these symptoms and become actually unwell so they can uh, get the attention that they want um so there was when i was kind of looking into it there was some people like open up cuts and rub dirt and cuts to give themselves infections and i guess this is kind of an extension of that it's the idea of you know taking insulin in order to make yourself unwell because you've dropped your blood sugar and stuff like that so um yeah yeah, he certainly seems like an unwell chap, doesn't he? Um, he he seems really, like the yes. kind of person, even at this point, the kind of person he probably wouldn't be want to be in charge of of, of other people's lives because it seems like he's got his own demons he's fighting. But there's no doubt about that. And you know, this whole incident that happened at the hospital, if that had been addressed appropriately, it could have probably, mm-hmm. well, it probably would have saved at least one life. You know, mm-hmm. that would have because he really, well, I don't know. I guess it just depends on whether or not he would have uh, still met her, but. Something should have been done. You you find out someone's injecting themselves with insulin and then the, the hospital administrators kind of suspected like if you're doing that, okay, we had mm-hmm. these three children die, these very suspicious deaths and they really, but his dad being a kind of a higher up police officer was able to kind of get that all brushed away. That happens so yeah. often in the stories mm-hmm. that we tell on here. I'm telling you, it is scary the things yeah. that people do and then, the hospitals want it to go away. They don't want anyone yeah. associating their hospital with this horrible thing. That's the thing. That's the thing. I think it's, it's a combination of kind of, uh, yeah, having friends in high places and hospitals really not wanting to admit that there's an issue, as well as sometimes, you know, individuals being particularly charismatic. You see it in the cases of a lot of serial killers across uh, the U- US and here where they get away with things for a long time because they are so charismatic and people mm-hmm. don't want to believe that somebody so charismatic would do so much, so many horrible things. People like and them. I think he's, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, he's always oh, like him. He's a nice guy. He can't have done those things that you're saying he's done. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think realistically as human beings, we all just want to assume that everybody's good, everybody's okay. Um, and it's actually really horrible um, to ad- acknowledge sometimes that you're we're surrounded by people who don't necessarily see the world like we do. He might be mentally unwell, might have personality disorders, but also just might, you know, really be unpleasant in the way that we see the world. So It's very true. Well, by 1993, he married a woman, her name was Claire Morris. She was a very sweet an outgoing woman. I watched the nurse, the nurses who kill um, little show. I watched the video of that, of that, and her brother was on there. They interviewed him, and it was so sweet because they would show these pictures of her. You know how these shows are; they show pictures of people, and they're just all smiles, and it's 
so sad. Mm -hmm. But her brother talking about her was just the most heartbreaking thing because he obviously loved her very much and he talked about them growing up and uh, their father died at a young age. And so she was kind of, kind of became the, um, uh, she sort of helped take care of things around the house, I guess. He said, doing the gardening and that sort of thing. I was just like, oh my gosh, what a, she's just seemed like a really wonderful person. Mm-hmm. So around the time that they first married, Claire started getting sick. She was really tired all the time. She told her friends and family that she wasn't sure what was going on, but she was worried about it. She was really scared. She thought something's really wrong with me, but mm-hmm. she didn't know what. There wasn't anything anyone, you know, the doctors could figure out or there was nothing really obvious that would have been wrong with her, but she knew something wasn't right. So in 1994, she was killed in a car accident. Um, Malcolm was driving and they inexplicably ran off the road and hit a tree. So Malcolm escaped, but Claire was trapped in the car and it burst into flames and she was killed. So investigators ruled it an accident. Um, after she died, a friend, that's kind of a, 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 I guess, more of an associate, someone who was sort of connected to Claire, told the police that Claire had told her, Claire told her, this friend, okay, that she had actually been in an accident similar to this accident just a few months before her death. And I can imagine this person hearing about this and hearing, okay, they ran off the road, they hit a tree. That's weird. This happened just a couple months ago. I remember Claire telling me about this. They they were driving down the road. Malcolm was driving. They ran off the road and, and hit a tree or just or ran off the road or ended up in a ditch. So yeah, yeah, that's odd. I would find sure, that odd. Sure. And that person did the right thing, but tried to do the right thing by going to the police and reporting it. So by 1997, he had moved to New Zealand um, he married an oncology nurse by the name of Felicity Drum. They had a child together. And when I was watching the video, this, I don't know, some of the, they put these dramatizations in the video and you don't know, is that really yeah, how it happened? Say, or Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of hard to tell. But she, she, seemed like, she seemed like a wonderful person too. I mean, oncology nurse, are you kidding me? That's a difficult area yeah, of nursing. A, yeah, it's a tough job. It's a tough job for sure. Oh my gosh. And so those nurses, I know the ones that I work with and the interactions that I have, they're so, they're very resilient people. They're very tough yet compassionate. I don't know how in the world they do it, but they are able to have this tough exterior and yet still show so much compassion to their family members that they're taking care of, like they're the patient, the family. I used to work on a progressive care unit at our hospital and they sometimes would, the cancer patients would end up on our floor because they weren't quite ready to be on a regular med surge floor on the oncology unit because there's maybe they're on a higher level of oxygen or something like that. And okay. those nurses would come down there to see those patients. And I just remember thinking, I know you have a lot of patients up there. I can't believe you're taking the time to come and do this. It's just, I'm so impressed with them. So Felicity was an oncology nurse. She later on told authorities that while she was on her, their honeymoon, Malcolm gave her a drink and she remembered after she drank it, she slept for over 36 hours. That's a long time to sleep. It's a long, long time. That's a long, long time. 
That sounds like me after yeah. Benadryl. <laughs> like, <laughs> but that seems like that seems like such a red flag to me independently. Mm-hmm. Like it's like how that's not something that can just happen naturally almost. It's is pretty impossible for it just to suddenly happen and you not to connect the dots and be like, this doesn't seem right. I should probably go and see somebody about this because this seems very strange. Right. But yeah, it's it's it seems like it's um another one of these things which independently, I guess, it's just part of your life. You know, it's not something that you necessarily connect the dots, something that you really care about and uh, they wouldn't do anything to hurt you so you don't even consider it an issue. But um, Yeah, you would just think, oh, something must have been wrong. I must have been sick. I had that drink and had a lot of alcohol in it and I just slept it off. It happened again. Uh, She, same thing, similar thing, slept for 18 hours after Malcolm had given her a drink. So it's just so, sometimes we can look at these things in a retrospect, you know, for us, it's obvious, like, why would Mm. you stay with someone? But for them, like you said, they're in love with this person. There's no real reason to suspect they would do something like that. Otherwise, she wouldn't have married him. And we've all, we've all, I think we've all come into contact with toxic people in our lives. And for Mm. whatever reason, we haven't necessarily seen just how negative they they can be or negative they are to other people. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we're all focused on other things. The the world is busy and we've got our own um, lives to live. And I just think this is just an extreme example of that, isn't it? It's, there's toxic people and sometimes we don't want to look for the issues because it means that we've got to approach them head on. Um, And especially if there's somebody you're really, you're really close to. There's not going to be, you're going to be trying to avoid acknowledging that elephant in the room, I think. That is um, so true. She said that Malcolm appeared to be financially well off. He had a home, he had a car, he had a boat. I thought it was funny when she said he had a car. I was watching the thing and she like, he seemed financially well off, he had a car. And I remember thinking, he had a car, what difference does that make? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, a home and a boat and all that, I guess you think he's stable. You don't have yeah. all those things, if usually, you know. Yeah. But they didn't really have any way of knowing that he purchased those things with insurance money that he had received after the death of his first wife, Claire. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't realize that. So, so, nothing, so within, because yeah. uh, the, what I read about him, it didn't, it didn't make it clear. Did Felicity, she wasn't aware that he'd been married previously. So it was, it was purely, it was purely that it seemed like it'd been a completely new relationship. Um, to her and there wasn't anything in his past that she should know about or was she kind of aware that he'd been married before? I'm trying to remember. I, for some reason, was thinking that she wasn't aware of the first marriage. They didn't have any children. Okay, because I I kind of read further on a little bit and apparently there might have been some issues with uh, kind of bigamy later on and I'm not sure if it was because, I assume if he was a widower, then it wouldn't be Well, that's because he was still married to Felicity. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes, yeah. sense. that makes sense. So they're still married, but yeah, I don't, I don't know because see, he moved to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, you're far enough away that you could, you don't really have to, you know, you can kind of make a Fresh reinvent start. yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And maybe not tell them that you were married before if you don't want to, yeah, or yeah, yeah. you could make up some sort of story, but they might not ever put together that you got a large payout from insurance, from an insurance claim yeah, yeah. after the death. So she just never, again, he's very charming and she yeah. kind of bought right into all that. And, and, and also, you know, if if somebody that you really care about is charming and they have all the money that you, that obviously benefits your life as well if you're involved with them, then I think even the best of us probably wouldn't ask all that many questions. You just assume that things are okay, you know, yeah. unless, unless something suddenly happens where you have to kind of start questioning where all this money's come from. If we suddenly, yeah. suddenly get into really expensive thing, that's one thing. But I think if it's just a comfortable life for you, I think sometimes we don't ask enough questions about why that's happening. Yeah. And Felicity had some money of her own. She wasn't 
wealthy by any means. She had savings. And mm-hmm. that's, I find that so sad because it's not like she came from a very wealthy family where she just had plenty of money and he was kind of marrying her just so he could um, have access to that money. But he married her, married someone who had worked really hard, who's an oncology yeah, yeah. nurse, who saved her money. And then he's taken advantage of this person and then sure. basically stealing her money, which is, oh, it makes me so mad when I think about that. Yeah, yeah. So I, unfair. I read, I read there was a, he was, he was quoted as saying to like multiple people that um, it was something like, why work for yourself when you can get somebody else to work for you? Yeah. Um, and apparently he philosophy. used to say that. Yeah, apparently he used to say that all the time and was quite happy saying it. And it's like, that seems like such a strange thing to, to say, especially with his history, to be yeah. so kind of brazen and obnoxious with the kind of horrible things he was doing to what seemed like really nice, decent like, human beings. Yeah, he's so proud of it. It's like he's yeah, just yeah. so self-absorbed. Mm. So Malcolm made excuses to Felicity as to why he wasn't able to provide money because they were purchasing a home. She has savings, so she's putting in money into it. And apparently she transferred a large sum of money into an account where they were, where he would have access to it. And she didn't, she wasn't even aware, but he was dipping into that account and taking money out, all the while expecting that he's supposed to be putting money in as well. And he has all these excuses as to why it's not working because they're in New Zealand and he's from, I don't know what area it was. I feel like it must have been Scotland because that's where the trial was. But I didn't really understand that. Like I said, when you get so far removed, it's kind of under, it's kind of yeah, hard yeah. to understand like where everything happened. Yeah, I think he traveled around so much, and mm-hmm. I think maybe the first the first wife might have died in Scotland, and that's what the trial was related to. Okay. But I think yeah. So, but I think he'd moved around the UK and moved obviously to to Saudi Arabia and to New Zealand. Yeah. So I think it's just he was all over the place. Yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. But he had lots of excuses why he didn't have access to that money. And Felicity was, I guess she felt like it must have been reasonable. She just sort of went along with it. So at one point though, she's like, there is a deadline coming up. We have to make this payment. We have to buy the house or we're going to lose it. Let's go. Yeah. We're going to the bank right now. And on the way to the bank, uh, they're driving down the road and Malcolm says that something went wrong with the steering wheel. And Felicity was extremely lethargic as she as you know, that happened to her quite often when she was around Malcolm. She almost passed out in the car, but when the car started to veer off the road, she woke up and grabbed the steering wheel. It was so dramatic in this video. <laughs> Because in the reenactment, you know, it shows someone that has to be what really happened. I mean, she literally kind of like had to will herself out of the stupor that she was in from whatever drug. And Mm -hmm. she grabbed the steering wheel and they didn't hit the tree that he intended to hit. He jumps out of the car and runs around to what in America we call the trunk of the car and you guys call the boot and it's always so I love <laughs> watching the videos he ran around to the boot and it always takes me a few seconds I'm just like <laughs> run around to the boot what? I'm so confused and then I'm like oh yeah they called that's right it's the boot <laughs> so he ran around to the back of the car we'll find out in a little bit but he had a little something a little surprise in there for her and Felic- he told Felicity yells at her stay in the car while he goes back to the back of the car well, Felicity didn't, didn't listen. She got out of the car. Meanwhile, there's a passerby who stops to help. And all of this, I guess, is overwhelming to Malcolm because he starts having 
symptoms of a heart attack. So Felicity, because Felicity had actually called, this is so funny, she called her lawyer and was like, take me to the bank. She just, they just had a wreck and she's still wanting to go to the bank. And he's like, oh no, I'm having a heart attack. Like he he wants to do anything to keep from going to the bank. Yeah, so, yeah. Because mm-hmm. he knows. I guess realistically, like Felicity, even in this kind of like drugged stupor that she must've been in, mm-hmm. she still seems aware enough. She must've had concerns about him um, yes. because she seems aware enough that maybe he's not telling the complete truth, even at this point, probably because of all the mispayments and all the excuses he'd made. But, you know, all power to her for standing up for herself and actively going mm-hmm. and making sure she wasn't, what we find out, potentially killed in this exact situation, you know, standing up and, and ignoring what he was saying because she had enough of a, a gut feeling, even if it's, you know, maybe later than than we hope it would be, but a gut feeling that something was wrong here. Yes. Thank goodness she jumped out of the car because they discovered later on there wasn't anything wrong with the car. There was nothing wrong with the steering wheel. And there was actually a, a container of gasoline in the back of the car and there was a lighter there. There was no reason for there to be a lighter, of course. And they also discovered that Felicity had been sedated that day. She was heavily sedated um, with drugs. Tenazepam was in her system, which is a sleeping pill. You know, it's something you yeah. would give someone to help them go to sleep. And also, Malcolm had taken out uh, insurance claims on her that was worth, there were two different ones, and both of them to collectively were almost a million dollars. And she had no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they started suspecting that Malcolm had intentionally wrecked the car. <laughs> but it's strange. It's like because this is this is obviously you know a a, a big situation. But he's you know he, this wasn't it wasn't her and um, and Claire that were the only two people who were involved in this whole thing. He had multiple different relationships, and oh, yeah. almost all of them seemed to have gone a relatively similar way, where he was actively trying to to kill people off to get insurance mm. money, um, so which true. is in, incredible. You know, it doesn't seem like. He wasn't going to stop. He wasn't going to stop until he was put in prison. He was going to keep on doing this and didn't have any remorse at all. It's true. There were so many people. Whenever I was doing the research for it, I was like person after person after person, um, all these things that he did. And you mentioned the bigamy um, charge that because he was tr- he was going to try to marry another woman later on. And the police approached her and said, you know, I wouldn't do that if I were you because there are some charges uh, out against him. And so they warned her, thank goodness. Or Yeah, well, she... I, th- I think it was it was something like, so she was actively trying to change her will to essentially leave all her money. And she was, she was oh independently gosh. very well off. So she's trying to change her will to leave him essentially all, all her money. And the police had to come in and say, well, because of what you're doing, we are legally obligated within this kind of jurisdiction's mm-hmm. um, uh, law to to say this is his history and they gave him a letter saying they gave her a letter saying this is what he's done before and Im- initially she said i don't believe it i don't think that's true i think you've given me some false information and it wasn't yeah. until later on that she realized oh actually i probably should pay attention to this and it's lucky she yeah. did otherwise he probably would have killed her off for for her will so it's amazing yeah. you know because uh, he had talked claire into doing the same thing and felicity mm-hmm. uh into you know he of course he she transferred all that money into a joint account. But both of them, he talked into creating a will 
Uh, mm-hmm. These people are really young. Most people don't think about doing that, but he talked them into it and he kind of put it under the guise of like, hey, we'll take care of each other. If anything happens yeah. to me, you'll be taking care of anything that happens to you. I'll be, you know, like that that sort of thing. And really, and somehow he's able to talk them into this. And here is a Which, third person that comes along who's going to go yeah, yeah. right along with it. Crazy. Which in a, in a good trusting relationship, that all makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's something which I'm sure if they truly believed that they were in a loving relationship, which was going to be, um, you know, loving for the rest of their lives, yeah. then that's something which you would expect, you know, it's something that, that is, you know, entirely based on trust and should be beneficial for both parties because it's it's going to spend your lives together anyway. Right. But we know, obviously, that he wasn't, he didn't have any intention of doing anything like that. And it's just a shame that these apparently quite trusting, quite good people um, time and time again have fallen for who must have been quite a charismatic but, but utterly contemptible person. Oh, utterly contemptible. Absolutely. So Felicity confronted him about the fact that he obviously had planned to kill her. And he responded to her by saying that it would have been better had she died in the crash. Okay. Because if she had died in the crash, this is what he says to her. Well, if you had died in the crash, you would have died happy because Mm -hmm. she thought that he loved her and she didn't know about him stealing all of her money and so to him, of course, the money is the most important thing and her and him loving her is the most important thing. So that's literally his perspective. That yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just unbelievable. It's definitely, you know, it's definitely sociopathic. It's definitely kind of hugely narcissistic. Oh, gosh, um, yes. And I think it's somebody who clearly just isn't, isn't well adapted to, to real interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. and seems to completely, um, you know, think that whatever he wants trumps whatever anybody else wants across the board, which I think is just, it's impossible to live or love somebody like that, I think. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, obviously police are following him very closely. By two, This took, uh, you know, all of this stuff started in the early 90s and it takes until 2009 for him to be charged with the murder of Claire Morris, the attempted murder of Felicity Drum, and attempting to bigamously marry another woman, which we were talking about her, in order to carry out another scheme. And then several other charges, arson, of course, and all of the things, um, insurance fraud. There's lots of lots of layers to that cake. And um, he was convicted in May of 2011 and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 30 years. So at least he did go away. He's paying for his crimes and Felicity was spared. Her life was spared and her family, you know, has her and she was able to to come out of that. Poor Claire, I feel really bad for her brother and her family that that happened but unfortunately this is what people do i don't i don't under, i'll never understand it i think it's is what what makes it particularly shocking is as with all of the people on your on your podcast is the way that he uses his role to potentially commit crimes against his patients but also probably use that role and the respect that's associated with it to commit crimes and and undermine people's trust outside of his work as well um it's the idea that he's he's using you know what I think really should be quite a highly respected role as a nurse to mm-hmm. you know sink his uh, his teeth and his um, his kind of rot into other places and spread this kind of dishonesty um, in ways which you know are really horrible and it really kind of brings us all into a bad light. I think kind of mm-hmm. guilty by association with him, which is horrible. So. It is horrible in in the United States. They have these surveys and polls that are done every year. We love surveys. I don't know if you guys are like that there, but man, 
we're always having a survey and like the best of this person and them, you know. So there uh, is one poll that comes out every year and it's like the most trusted professions and nurses have been number one on that list for, uh, I guess, a couple of decades. The only mm-hmm. time that they were not at the top of that list was not the year that 9-11 happened and you had the first oh, yeah. responders and that was... Yeah, that was yeah. You know, people were like, oh yeah, police officers and firefighters and, you know, those first responders. But nurses are always at the top of that list. People trust us. People trust nurses. And rightly so. Most nurses, the vast majority of nurses are wonderful, amazing, giving people that will work an entire 12-hour shift without going to the bathroom or eating or anything. And I do not advocate for that, by the way. I said that one time and I got an email from someone kind of slapping my hands like, don't be encouraging that. I don't encourage that. People take care of yourself. Go to the bathroom. Don't get a kidney stone. You can't take care of other people if you don't take care of yourself (laughs) first. I always feel like I have to say that. But we are the most trusted profession. You know who was at the bottom of that list is like lawyers or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I do think we are a noble profession and I'm very proud to be a nurse. And that's why we always want to balance out the, that bad, horrible, dark story with something good. And this week, Piers, I wanted you to be the good nurse story because, oh my gosh, so encouraging and uplifting to listen to your poetry and watch whenever you do, your when you perform your poetry. There's a little place here that I don't even know if it's open now. COVID has ruined everything, but we used to go and watch whenever they would have spoken word poetry slams and uh, so much fun to go and just people get up and say they're, you know, just like, I'm always fascinated with people that are able to put words together and say things that are so deep and meaningful and insightful and so wise in such a beautiful way. It's one thing like to have that thought and those beliefs and to want to spread that to people, but to be able to actually say it so eloquently and beautifully, I'm just so impressed. So when did you start doing poetry? When did you know that you kind of had a a desire and a a talent for that? I've had a relatively straightforward career, I'd say. I started writing when I was in school and really enjoyed it, even though a lot of the people I was studying with didn't enjoy the kind of analysis of poetry. So I was writing then, I was writing through lessons and and reading poetry more than I know a lot of my peers were. And then I kind of stopped doing that probably about age 15, 16, when I discovered like girls and (laughs) kind of discovered that I I could do other things, you know, I started getting really into music and art and and not writing or reading as much as I had. And so I had about two years off. Um, And then after that two year break, I started getting really into a a slam poet called Buddy Wakefield, who's, who's from the US. And I was also really into hip hop at the time. And a lot of the people I was listening to were um, UK hip hop artists who'd come from poetry, people like Kay Tempest and uh, Scroobius Pip, who were both kind of just releasing some of their earlier work, um, doing a lot of tours. And so I was seeing them live. And I thought that's something which I could I could do. I'd already enjoyed poetry. I'd read and, and written a lot of poetry when I was younger. So I figured I should try performance poetry and try um, getting involved in slam culture. Now, slam isn't anywhere near as big in the UK as it is in the US. So I had to kind of seek out other people who were kind of like-minded. Um, but the first slam I performed in, I was, I think, 15 or 16, maybe, maybe it must have been yeah, six, late 16. And I, I won it in front of a crowd of, I think, 75, 100 people. And from then, I kind of realized that I, I was okay at this. I could do it. And it wasn't just the angsty musings of a teenage boy. Um, there was something in there which was, it resonated with other people. And I think that's the whole point of poetry is that you're trying to use quite simple words to communicate quite complex emotions, which which resonate with people who have a very different lived experience to you. And so I've always tried to write poetry which uses 
terminology which is accessible to everybody. You don't have to have studied poetry. Um, And I'd never want to write poems which are for people who study poetry at university um, because I think that you immediately alienate a whole subsection of society who, you know, already don't believe they like poetry and then they listen to one of your pieces and it's, you know, goes over the head because you use really academic terminology. Um, So I made a real point from the very beginning to write about my own experiences and write in a way which is accessible. At the same time, we, it was kind of post the 2008 recession. Um, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. I took a gap year and traveled around and saw what nurses were doing. So went down the nursing pathway, expecting to be able to keep on writing while I was doing nursing um, and write about my experience as a nurse. And I've been lucky to be able to kind of find that balance over the course of my career. And hopefully this continues and I'm able to do more and more teaching and more and more performances about the incredible people I meet in my job um, and find ways of kind of reflecting on what can be quite stressful days within A&E, but through the medium of poetry. So yeah, it's been good. It's been good. I've been, I've really enjoyed my time as a A&E nurse, but I think I've enjoyed it so much more because I've been able to reflect formally through um, creative expression. So, Well, it's really nice. I think that it is uh, therapeutic to be able to have that outlet and then to know that you're you are connecting with other people and helping other people by encouraging them. What you mentioned music and or do you do music and are there other creative outlets that you have i'd say no like i i i, I drum a little bit and i i do um a few of my friends uh, dj um so i do that very much as a hobby it's not like it's a professional thing i really love listening to music so i wanted to try and find ways of communicating the music i love to other people but i'm not i'm not i'm not a professional dj or drummer i just do it in my spare time it's just another creative outlet so and i've never really been as interested in um, writing and recording my own music because I have been kind of putting down my thoughts and ideas. Um, but there is some incredible musicians that I've worked with who create awesome kind of uh, soundscapes and, and background beats that work really well with poetry. So I've been lucky enough to go on tour with musicians um, and go and do like jam sessions with musicians, but but focused on bringing what I kind of do to the table so we can kind of meet in the middle a little bit because there's some people who do the, incredible things. Yeah, they can kind of add the music part yeah, yeah. And add the dramatic feel to, oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Well, um, would you care to maybe perform one of your of poems? So there are of a course. lot of nursing students that listen to this and not just nursing students. There are other, you know, people who are CNAs, uh, people, there are high school students that are like, I want to be a nurse one day, you know, just like the, it's just the best, uh, respiratory therapists, all kinds of people that listen to this podcast and that the one poem that you wrote about healthcare students, I thought was just so precious. Would you care to perform that for them? Of course. I, I guess I'll do a little introduction. So um, I went to a university in, in the UK um, to study nursing uh, about six years ago now and seven years, no, eight years, eight years. Wow, that's time flies. And had a really good time there. Um, did a little bit of teaching, a little bit of peer support while I was there. Um, and then since then, I've gone back and done a bit of teaching, done some performance um, and really focused on trying to bring kind of reflective practice through creative expression to to them whenever they've needed it. And I was lucky enough to be asked to write this piece to say thank you for um, healthcare students that they train, um, because a lot of them were brought from, you know, sometimes their second, third years of a three year degree without much uh, discussion with them into active practice. Um, and we had a lot of nursing students within um, A&E with us who had just suddenly moved from thinking they had six months before they had to start to suddenly being thrown in the deep end and, and actively working within our A&E department. So 
the university wanted me to write something just to kind of say thank you and acknowledge that it's a really tough time to be a student. Um, and though you're going to have incredible careers and and you're going to be incredible uh, practitioners, we still all really appreciate the fact that you've found ways of coping with you know a global pandemic, which we never could have seen um, coming or at least we never could have seen it coming to this level, I think. Um, and so, yeah, all power to healthcare students. So this is this is doesn't really got a name. It's just uh, thank you to all healthcare students, um, and it's aimed specifically. It, it lists specifically the healthcare students that were training at the university at the time, but it's to anybody involved in healthcare. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. So to all healthcare students, potential, current, finally finished, lifelong, thank you. Keep going. Always keep growing. Our work is never over. Thank you, therapists, for your passion and energy, paramedics and ODPs for your undervalued independence, doctors, researchers, pharmacists for your focused intellect, and all the roles in between and assistants unsung. And my nurses, for caring and keeping the ship afloat, in learning disability, mental health, pediatrics, and midwifery, thank you all for tirelessly fighting to find out how we interlock and overlap, adapting and extending this jigsaw puzzle of best practice. We all stand on the shoulders of giants, and our work is never over. And though our mission is vague, you are never alone. Your love is part of something large. Be phenomenal. I mean, you've already chosen love over an easy life. So lean in, do different. Let us be the giant shoulders our children stand on. But no, the roads may be tough. The world is troubled. Others will not understand your struggle. But believe me, there are ways of coping. There is a kindness in all things. All shall be well and you shall not be overcome. And yet, if all else fails and you find yourself flailing in the light, fight to remember the only thing more concrete than this campus. Patients are our everything. We unwrap ourselves to interweave with strangers' stories, become a friendly face to their furrowed brow, oases in their illness, or kind comfort through their fragmented minds. We fall into the universe in newborn eyes and breathe in the sacred air as engagement rings are slipped onto hospital-gloved hands. As tears roll behind visors and over-surgical masks. We must be present in the absence of breath after failing to squeeze the warmth back into her hands. And we will continue to be hurt by the men's voices all rugged and bevel-tipped as they spiral. Until they too soften into tears, cracked by all the memories we never knew, and weighed down by the wavering words of... She would have really liked that. Thank you for being there. We must lullaby people's brokenness. We're all scared. It's what makes us human. But we must breathe our own fears forwards and grow through them. 
Our competence must be dynamic and filled with radical honesty. Thank you, students, after night shifts, for seeing the celadon-glazed summer sunrise crisp in the mist, the seagulls peeling electric into the empty air, filling the sky with vowels. Thank you. Students, you are wonderful. Vibrant in the light, full of all that bursting, fizzing, caring love. Yes, students, you are wonderful. And though you're known for creating art, our care becomes our art. Our art saves lives. And our work is never over. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much. That's so, oh gosh, it's so beautiful and says so much. There's so much in there that um, will speak to so many people. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange one because I, with these performance pieces, we always want to keep them relatively short because people's um, attention spans are so short in this modern age. And so I knew I wanted to speak to a lot of different professionals um, and say a lot of the things which are really in my heart and in my mind, but without going on too far. So I, I feel like, We've managed to squeeze so much in there and the the video which is, is being created by the UEA where I went, I think it does a good job of kind of showing off the, the campus, showing off the places where a lot of the time you're studying, but also really focusing on the words and, and getting across the idea that this is something which I really love doing. And I think that any healthcare students thinking about studying um, or in the middle of their studies will really, really enjoy doing, but without sugarcoating it, you know, because it is, it's a tough job. It's a yeah. tough job. And I think the payoff is huge, but it's it's heavy sledding at times. So it's nice to have all of that kind of in there and that beautiful poem that kind of honors people. And you know, a lot of students are are sort of the unsung heroes because, let's face it, they work for free. <laughs> they don't. I don't know yeah. if they do there or not, but in the United States, yeah, if you're yeah. a nursing student, you don't get paid to do clinicals for sure. Yeah. So you're yeah, and they work so hard and they're so eager. And then what you're saying is a lot of them kind of got here, a lot of them got cheated out of their clinicals because they ended up having to do a lot of things online. Okay. That So then you show up to work and you you think you're unprepared. If you get all of those experiences, you show up feeling yeah, unprepared. Yeah, yeah. Imagine if you didn't get to go to Sim Lab or you didn't get to, because you're uh, because of social distancing or they were sure, in the, sure. you know, the early stages of COVID, I, I, not sure how to how to handle it. I think also like there's something about, I think there's a lot of courses which, you know, haven't suffered as much for being taught online. I know I've done, I've, I've done poetry sessions online and they've worked really well. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something about the actual um, kind of tactile nature of nursing where uh, you talk about kind of sim sessions, but certainly like actually interacting with a physical thing um, and having people kind of guide you through clinical skills and guide you through assessments is something which I don't think you can really do properly through e-learning. Um, and also because of the kind of wide subsection of nurses that we get in the UK, you do get a lot of people who are potentially like older nurses who've been out of formal education for a while, um, younger nurses who've just left, you know, higher education and people who haven't necessarily been um, as academically successful as, uh, say, people who are studying uh, medicine. And so you've got to really find ways of allowing all these different kinds of people to succeed and not everybody's going to succeed by just reading something on a screen some some of us really really benefit from you know that tactile nature um and so it's a real shame i think a lot of people have slipped through the cracks and had a much worse experience um because of COVID 19 and uh i think 
we won't necessarily see the impact of that until in a few years' time. They, we, we have nurses who just haven't quite got the clinical skills down because they just haven't had the opportunity. So, um, yeah, hopefully we get on top of this sooner rather than later. But I think there's a lot of people thinking the same thing. So. It's true. And not, not just nurses. You know, you mentioned all the different healthcare workers. Doctors, this is affecting medical students as well. They're showing up now to the hospital, having maybe missed a few months of the end of their internship, or yeah, and they're (laughs) they're expected to step right in there and do do what they're supposed to do. And like I said, even for doctors, you know, we talked about that several times on this podcast before. I think nurses can be hard on doctors sometimes, and they they (laughs) they get nurses are in there working, and we start learning a few things and understanding how everything works, and and then these residents show up, and they've they're a doctor, right? They've got an MD after their name. You're supposed to know stuff. But they show up and they don't know everything. They know stuff, but they don't know what they know. <laughs> they, yeah, they haven't yeah, had a chance yeah. to put it to use yet. And so everything for is sure, so brand sure. new. They're nervous and they're in this situation of high intensity. They're scared of being embarrassed or making a mistake, making the wrong decision. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. man, sometimes nurses can be brutal to them. Yeah. Just like- It can be horrible. We can be horrible. Yeah, and, it's and, and horrible. horrible in a way which isn't necessarily constructive either. No. There's, there's, I think sometimes ego gets in the way, and some, you know, senior nurses, some junior nurses use it as an opportunity to show that they know things, but it's not necessarily beneficial to the more disciplinary team. It's not very difficult. It's, it's not very difficult just to be kind, you know. And yeah. I think sometimes even if we're busy, we should never forget that you know these are still human beings at the end of the day even if they've got an md after their name even if they've theoretically gone through all this training you know we all have bad days and we all struggle sometimes to put what we know into practice and yes. you know i've I mean, i've seen yeah. i've seen a lot of very junior doctors look like a rabbit in the headlights until somebody mm-hmm. kind of until they know they've got somebody on side or they know they've got a friend who isn't going to judge them and then suddenly you know they they bloom into these incredible practitioners and yes. it's just you know, we all need a, a helping hand getting through those initial few um, shaky moments in practice. So, yeah, I always tell people don't use that as an opportunity to build yourself up by tearing someone else down. It's not yeah, necessary. Yeah. For sure, for sure. But I think, you know, it's a bit of a cliche that sometimes nurses can eat their young. I think when people get into higher positions inside of departments, sometimes we're less understanding and are more happy to pull up the ladders that have helped us get there um, than maybe other, other specialities. And it's not entirely clear why that is, um, but it, there's certainly certain um, areas where the environment becomes quite toxic because some of the senior nurses have, have make it more really difficult to take on leadership roles because they feel like they've had to fight or um, yeah. they feel like people should have as tough a time as they did. But we don't need to perpetuate that kind of negativity. You don't need to perpetuate that toxic environment. You can guide people by the hands and, and make it make it more of an easy ride for them without undermining their learning you just have to do it in the right way so yeah that's very true and when you when you say senior nurses for me my experience is it's not necessarily the nurse that's been a nurse for 30 years it's the nurse mm-hmm. who graduated maybe a, maybe three years ago and it has mm-hmm. has a couple of years under her belt his or her belt and they kind of are feeling really comfortable now in their skin yeah. as a nurse and then as a new person, a new nurse comes along, they start seeing mistakes that the, the person made or insecurity, and they pounce on that as an opportunity to because now they feel all comfortable and confident. They forget yeah. just a couple of years ago, you know, you didn't know everything. Um, yeah, yeah, It's yeah. just, just treat people the way you want to be treated. That's all I got to say. Yeah, for I sure, mean, for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is great. I mean, this has been really a treat for me. I know that the listeners are going to love it too. And we're going to put another one of your, another one of your poems 
at the end, a recording of it at the end of of, of the show. Um, where can people find your poetry if they want to like see all of your different, all of your work that you do? It's, it's scattered all across the the internet. I've got a website, um, which is under peersofthepoet.co.uk, uh, which I've been meaning to update for quite a while. So it's got a, a few of my more famous pieces on there, but it's not been updated for the past, I think, six months to a year. So almost all the stuff I've done this year isn't on there. Um, but at some point before the end of the year, I will get around to really updating it. But the most up-to-date thing is my Facebook, my poetry Facebook page, which is just under Piers, Piers the Poet as well, or Piers Harrison Reed Poet. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter if you want to get in contact with me through them, but they're not they're not as active because I don't use them all that often. I I've, I grew up with Facebook and um, mm. I find it more difficult. I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm 27 and I feel like I'm in that middle ground between things being, feeling like I'm kind of up to date with technology and feeling like I'm completely out of date with technology. So I never really got used to using Twitter or Instagram, but I am on there if you ever want to send me a message. Yeah, I think everybody kind of picks their thing that they're most comfortable with and then the others sort of get neglected. That's how we are. I like Instagram and I think Instagram probably gets most of my attention. And then whatever I post on Instagram, I think it automatically goes on Facebook and then poor Twitter. I just am not very good at Twitter. I think I think it's it's strange. They're, they're all used in slightly different ways, and like you have to post in certain ways. And like I, I I like kind of scrolling on Instagram. I like scrolling on Twitter and reading people's things, um, and what and looking at people's things. But I don't I don't understand what makes a good post or like being a creator, what makes a good post on those things. Whereas I think I understand what makes a good Facebook post. So mm-hmm. I just think the quality of the stuff I post in Twitter and, in, and Instagram is substantially worse um, because I just don't understand what people want. Um, I so know. sorry if you follow me on either of those things. I think the quality will be a little bit a little bit low. But Yeah, I think a lot of people in the West Coast in the United States are Twitter people. Like the, mm-hmm. the West Coast, they love Twitter. And it just seems like, I think Twitter is to me more about words like just a little, just a little. So Twitter for me is just like a little snippet, like a snap, like a little snapshot or a little statement. And then Instagram is more about images. You know, it's more about pictures and memes and GIFs and, you know, little videos and that sort of thing. It's just more visual. Yeah, And Facebook, it's a a weird world. It's almost like ranty kind of, I kind of got away from Facebook just because there was so, it was, it got so, like people and their rants. And yeah, I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. I get on my rants too sometimes, but <laughs> man, they can, it can get toxic fast on Facebook. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think that's, you know, it's, it's the whole doom, doom scrolling thing that I mm-hmm. guess is, is, is on Twitter, but also I think kind of started on Facebook with just, it's just rants. And then someone's posted a, a, a news article about how everything's bad um, and you've read another rant and yeah. you know, then a picture of a dog, but you know, back to the rants. Um, <laughs> so picture of I think food. Just, yeah, yeah. I think I've just got so used to that being the way social media is, it is that I don't think, I think it's just, it would take me a little while to get used to using any other social media, but I don't necessarily feel like that's a, a good thing about Facebook. It's just pure habit, I think. So, it's just the habit, um, yeah, and what you get comfortable yeah. with. Yeah, for sure. You guys know you can find me at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse on Facebook. No, wait, that's wrong. At Good Nurse Batters on Instagram and GNBM Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And you can just email me if you want to send me a message at tina at goodnursebatters.com. Our website is goodnursebatters.com. You can go there if you want to um, and listen. If for some reason you don't have any of the other platforms, as if you need, you're already listening to this podcast. I don't even know why I bother saying that, but (laughs) I appreciate you so much for being here. I appreciate you guys for listening and send me your stories. You guys know I love to hear your stories, your inspiring stories or the 
stuff that's going on in your hometown, your true true crime stories. I need all that I can get. I need all the help I can get. So I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, please be a good nurse. so far man let's go what is it to be human now the personal is political names drawn in the sand the duality of humanity we find ourselves unsure of what comes next i felt lost and found in the fishes of my father's hands held high above my head Toddler two stepping down burst concrete streets Bouncing to the cadence of the open summer windows Playing sleepy sax And I buzzed Like a tone fork All rose-tinted and soft-focused All silhouettes and sunsets When I was a kid I wanted to be a street sweeper You know the truck with the brushes on? My teacher left I think I just wanted to make things better Now I keep lists I keep lists of lists I'm terrified of running out of energy to stop running from my shame Of a life lost in limbo, dissolving in the light Whilst my brothers and sisters sing their solitude into slipknots And have to learn to love without words That ain't the only way to fly Is the only thing we are all defined by our fear I swear, we're all looking for a life and love Or numbness to life and love, I remember The bitter smell of coffee beans and cigarettes on my dad's breath Him Drinking from a mug that made me think of the stars and a pitch black sky Some days now I think I see Van Gogh's starry skies in my sink water Floating ethereal on the scum There is beauty in everything There is beauty in everything I said it twice because I forget it far too often But I'm working on it I have not always, do not always feel worthy of love But I am working on it been up and down for years some days i swear i can barely make out the light and the night drags in darkness and leaves it bristling on the doorstep i have contemplated suicide but i'm working on it i'm unfinished i admit our bones are patchwork kintsugi and there's so much here faces lit pink in half-set sun i'm nursing now i think i'm still trying to make things better so grow out your wings friends there is better ways to fly My God is a child, beaming, giggles, eyes folded tight, nothing in her mind but the sky, laughing with her. <laughs> so a right or wrong haiku, rain shivers hot leaves, and I, under shelter, am unbearably happy.